Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of intersectionality and creating change. Shadra Pittman is the perfect bridge between our celebration of Black history in February and our celebration of women's history in March. As a former public educator for the New York African Burial Ground Project and creator of an ancestral remembrance ceremony, this native of the Bronx, New York, has spent the past three decades on the front lines advocating for women, human rights, equity in education, and honoring the Africans that the world forgot. Shadra is the founder and executive director of Asenkofa Projects, where she works to preserve the legacy of the African diaspora. She's also the founder of Forever. Ever stands for End Violence, End Rape. It's an activist organization that seeks to end sexual violence globally while advocating for death and LGBTQI inclusion. Kizzy and I are happy to welcome you to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? So were, were you born in New York? Yeah, so I was actually born in New York. I always tell people that I'm northern born but southern raised because my parents are from the south. My mother's from Alabama. And my dad is from North Carolina. But, yeah, born and bred in the Bronx, went to school in Co-op City, uh, Truman High School. Um, Mm. You know, was there at the beginning of hip-hop, I always like to say, because, you know, kids nowadays think that they're creating something new. And I'm like, ah, it's an evolution. Like, it's been around, Uh uh (laughs) you know. It started in the boogie down. So, yeah, so, yeah, New York is home for me. It will always be, it will always be home. I don't think I'll ever move back. Um, at least now, not until my kids get older, but, um, but yeah, that's home. Great. Great. Well, that's really interesting, particularly how you were talking about, um, hip hop, because I know a far back, there's a couple, and her name is Danielle Johnson, and she has been involved, like, and that's what she'll say, you know, the Bronx is the home of hip hop. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah. back in the back in the day, I mean, back in my in my in my twenties, um, I did videos and did MTV. So, I mean, I worked with like you know Chuck D and um, the Salt and Pepper used to come to my house. I mean, we you know so uh-huh. I was really entrenched in the <laughs> in the hip hop um, in the hip hop world. Um, so it's just. It's just interesting to see how even that has evolved, you know, that whole phenomenon of hip-hop and rap and, 
and all of that. But anyway, that's a sidebar conversation. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is, that's fascinating. That's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So I like how you say how you were born in New York. Um, your parent, family is from the South. Um, and you get, and from that, you, you, you have this, this love of anthropology that has been your work. You've done a lot of things in New York. And yeah. I know that we've talked before, and one of the things that I've noticed particularly recently, you went back and uh, were talking about the New York African Burial Ground Project and the Ancestral Remembrance Ceremony, and I saw that you had something, uh, participated in a program recently. Yes, yes. So it was so wonderful. You know, it, as a student in anthropology, um, I was often, well, when I told my family that I wanted to major in anthropology, you know, the question that everyone asked was, how are you going to get a job? Where are you going to work? What are you going to do? Uh And I was committed to doing anthro because it was the first time that I felt, I found something that I just felt completely alive. I was like, oh, my God, I have to do this work. I want to be involved in this work around us and around um, understanding humanity from an anthropological level, you know. So long story short, yes, I was in a program um, um, this, earlier this week. One of my fellow public educators that I worked with at the African Burial Ground, it was called the Office of Public Education and Interpretation of the African Burial Ground. That's where we worked, and it was located at Six World Trade Center. Well, it's been, you know, 100 years since we worked together, but she has moved on and she's in Long Beach um, and decided that she wanted to do a Black History Month program. So she contacted me and she contacted, her name is Ama, Dr. Ama Bochua. And Ama um, contacted me and contacted a fellow public educator who was an archivist at the Avery Research Center in South Carolina and uh, at the College of Charleston. Her name is Deborah Wright. And so we three got together to have a conversation about our work at the burial ground, where we are now, and where we see the work going uh, towards the future. So it was wonderful, I have to tell you. It was such a, it was such a reunion um, because our work at the burial ground was – you know, literally groundbreaking, you know, the work that was done at the African Burial Ground Project um, for so many reasons. It was just a groundbreaking um, find, an archaeological find, to find a burial ground dating back to the 1700s of Africans who worked and were who were enslaved in colonial New York when, you know, the narrative about slavery was that black people, African people, came from the south to the north for freedom. Well, you know, the discovery of this burial ground proved that Africans were here. And actually, the population in New York at one point in time, New York had the second population, the second largest population of Africans next to Charleston, South Carolina, at one Mm. point. So it was a, a, you know, a large community, a large African presence that literally built New York City. You know, the, the enslaved labor made New York what it is today. So, You know, and it's interesting, you know, especially because it's Black History Month, how um, they often talk about, you know, it's like we had no history other than slavery. Um, yeah, yeah and, and we've had so much of a history. 
when you wanted to go into anthropology, did it ever occur to you that what you wanted to learn about was right there really in your backyard about our no. culture? No, and that's what's so funny about it, you know. So I went to my first two years I went to school West Virginia, in West Virginia, West Virginia University. I was there for two years, and I actually was a political science major. I wanted to go to law school. Um, I early on was an advocate of social justice, even before I knew what that was. I, you know, I was quick to point out injustice. I was quick to, you know, have uh, comments about it and get involved very early on. And so I did that for two years. I was at uh, West Virginia, left there, and then wound up at George Mason. In the, in the middle of that time, though, I took a course at the University of Connecticut at Stanford, and because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, um, there were things that happened at West Virginia, some pretty intense racial um, situations that happened. And, you know, me being, you know, uh, a young 19, 20-year-old from the Bronx, never having had encounter being called um, racial epithets, being told to go back to Africa, you know, those sorts of things. I was enraged, and my mother, I think, was very scared for me and told me, you need to come back north, period. Mm. So I came back north. I um, took a class at the University of Connecticut at Stanford, and I, you know, I literally just picked a class, just said, oh, this sounds interesting. It was a course on Native American on the Navajo Nation, and my mother is Seminole and Choctaw. So I said, you know what? Ah. I said, I'll take, I'll take the course and just kind of see what happens. I completely, Michelle, fell in love with the course. Mm -hmm. With the artifacts that she brought in, I just felt like I found home. And so um, I had no idea that, you know, years later I would come back to New York, wind up working at a burial ground that was, you know, miles away from, I mean, on Saturday mornings I used to take classes. My mother had us in Alvin Ailey Dance School. And so we used to go, although I was from the Bronx, we went into Manhattan every Saturday for dance class. So I was in the city. I was in Manhattan, you know, miles away mm -hmm. from the African burial ground and didn't know mm -hmm. who existed, had no idea. And it was only, you know, in 1989, the city was, um, they bought the General Service Administration, um, and some other governmental agencies decided they wanted to build this building. It cost $276 million, and they were going to house, you know, some of the government agencies, the GSA, I believe the, the FBI, I think, I think the FBI, I'm not sure, but the, but the CII, the uh, GSA was the main, the General Service Administration was the main organization, and they were going to house, you know, um, offices in this building at 290 Broadway, and it was the corner of Duane and Reed Street. So, but before they could do the construction, they have to do what's known as a cultural resource survey. And so the cultural resource survey is done to protect anything that may be of historical re relevance under the ground. So um, when they did that, they looked at, you know, part of that research is you look at old maps. When they looked at the old maps, they discovered that the maps from the 1700s identified that there was a Negro's burying ground in this plot of land where the building was. And they thought, oh, you know, this was 300 this is, You know, we're not going to find anything. This was so long ago. Well, they started 
with the bulldozers, and they came up with skeletal remains. Mm -hmm. And from that, you know, the bones initially were taken to Moon College, where at that time they were not preserved in a way that, um, that respected the integrity of this sacred find, which were human remains. Um, okay. They were wrapped in newspaper. Um, mm -hmm. So you had the impression of, you know, the newspaper on the, the bones of our ancestors. So the community came out and fought for African-American leadership. They wanted scholars of African descent because they felt that the scholars would have a level of respect for these bones, whereas these other scholars did not show that same respect. And so the bones wound up at, at um, Howard University being studied under uh, Dr. Michael Blakey. Um, the lead archaeologist was Dr. Warren Perry. Um, Fatima Jackson, Dr. Fatima Jackson was at, uh, was at Howard. She did a lot of research on the, uh, the, uh, the DNA, um, identifying where these Africans came from. Um, and so it was, it was really wonderful. And my director, Dr. Cheryl Wilson, was also African-American. So it was a full African-American-led team. And there were other people who participated. So it wasn't only black people working on this project, but the lead people who were directing this research were all of African descent. And that was really, that was a landmark to have that mm -hmm. as well, to have this kind of archaeological find of African people in colonial New York um, being studied and researched by African scholars. I mean... What a what a way to turn slavery around, right? <laughs> you know, the ancestors of these people, the descendants of those who were enslaved, were now in a position to tell their story. It was beautiful. So, so beautiful. Yeah. The dream come true, quite honestly, to work for the project. Mm -hmm. How did you find out about the African Burial Ground Project, and what was that you know, experience like emotionally, physically, spiritually, just, you know, working on that site? What was that like? Well, you know, Kizzy, it's really funny. And this is why I say I know that the ancestors led me to this project. Because I, um, after leaving the University of um, Connecticut, Stanford, um, I decided to go to George Mason. So I finished at George Mason University. That's where I got my degree in anthropology and African-American studies. While I was there, I was taking a course in African-American literature with a professor whom I'm still in contact today. Um, her name is Dr. Marilyn Mobley. And so Dr. Mobley came in one day, and she knew I was an Anthro student. At the time, I was one of two students in the entire program. I didn't have any professors that... Uh, taught anthropology who were people of color, not one. Um, so my only professors who were black were in the African-American Studies program and the history, you know, of course, classes. Um, so Dr. Mobley came in one day, and she gave me a newspaper clipping. This was in 1991, I believe. And you know there's a long time ago if it's a newspaper clipping because everything is, everything is a link. You know, we send things by our cell phones now, but... But in 91, she came into the class, and she put it on my desk, and she said, I think you'll be interested in this. And when I looked at it, I was in awe. I couldn't believe, Kizzy, that it was in my backyard, you know, that I grew up in New York. I grew up going to Manhattan and never knowing that in the original burial ground, 
there's 10 to 20,000 Africans buried underneath the Wall Street area. I had no idea. So I immediately started researching the project. I called Howard. I was trying to work in their laboratories. Their laboratory is called the Cobb, the Cobb Montague uh, uh, Cobb Laboratory. And I wanted to work there, but I didn't have any experience in, in the, the, the study of the bones, osteology. I didn't have any osteological experience. So, you know, they kept saying, well, call back. Something may come up. Call back. You may be able to. So, I, you know, once I graduated, I said, you know, I'm going back to New York. I moved back to New York. The day before I moved back to New York, or it might have been in that week, but I think it was the day before, I got a call from Howard saying, we have a position, you know, if you want to come and volunteer and work. And by that time, I had given up my apartment in Virginia. I said, no, I'm going to New York. So I go to New York, I come back to D.C. on a weekend, and I said, you know, I'm going to go by the lab. I want to see how the bones are doing. I was so connected to the project. And I met with Mark Mack, who was, right under Dr. Blakey. He worked under Dr. Blakey on the skeletal remains, you know, a biological anthropologist. And I talked to Mark, who is now an ancestor. He passed a couple of years ago. Um, it was heartbroken to hear that. He was such an incredible human being and gave so much to the project. And now he's an ancestor. Um, wow. But Mark gave, me, Mark gave me a newsletter. And he said, you know, keep in touch. I was like, I absolutely will. I go back to New York, I'm riding the train, and as I'm reading the newsletter, Kizzy, I, I flip the newsletter mm-hmm. over, and the address of the newsletter says Sixth World Trade Center, New York City. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. They have a New York office? I mean, I know people who were sitting next to me on the train thought that I was, like, having, that something had happened. I mean, I probably, you know... I'm sure my body and the sounds that I was, I was so excited. I cannot tell you because I've been following this project for years. And then five years later, I'm on a train going back to New York only to realize that they have an office in New York. So I call the office. I ask them, what do they do? They say, we do public education. Uh, we go out into schools. We do presentations you know, starting at third grade all the way through college. We do, you know, uh, churches. We do community centers. We do uh, retirement homes. Anywhere anybody wanted to learn about the project, we would travel. Or they would come to our site and we would take them, you know, on tours of the actual burial ground. We would take them inside the building and show them the art that had been made to commemorate. So anyway, the guy is telling me all of this, and I'm like, oh, my God, are you hiring? And he said, yes. I got an interview, and within a week, I had a job working at Six World Trade Center, and I, I was telling someone the other day when we did the, the, the call that I used to love walking down in the Wall Street area, you know, wrapped in my head wraps and, you know, mm-hmm. African attire with all these little kids behind me. You know, I have a trail. I was like a mother duckling. I had a trail of like 25 <laughs> 25, 30 kids, you know, meandering through the city streets with all these people, these businessmen. You know, downtown is very, it's very business, you know. It's Wall Street. Mm -hmm. It is very white, very male, very business. And then you have this black woman, as well as the other public educators who look like me, walking through the city, taking these children to see this plot of land where their ancestors were buried. Um, 
and to teach them about slavery and to to debunk the theories that slavery did not happen in New York. It was such a wonderful and and pivotal time in my life. I mean, it really marked me um, and, and really set me on course for what I would do for the rest of my life because, you know, here we are, you know, 30 years later, and I'm still doing work around the ancestors. I still... Um, honor them. I still do, rem- I do remembrance ceremonies, which we used to do on the site. You know, Kizzy, you asked me about the emotional and the physical and, you know, there was a spiritual component to working at the burial ground that was and is um, still with me. Um, I never felt spooked or um nervous or afraid, you know, because I would walk over the burial ground under which there were graves that had been, that were empty. You know, those bones, those bodies were taken out and taken to Howard to be, mm-hmm. to be studied. And so, but I felt it was such an honor. Like I felt so proud to, to give voice to their story. Um, so there was an immense pride that I had. Um, I felt a deep connection spiritually to these ancestors as well as the descendant community. That's a term that Dr. Michael Blakey actually came up with, the descendant community. They came out in groves and demanded that the politicians respected this burial ground, that they made sure that the people who were even speaking about these Africans spoke about them in a way that was respectful. You know, we had many ceremonies on site. We had a con priest come from Africa to pour libations. Um, it was a pahankrator. They came to the burial ground to apologize for their mm. participation in slavery. Mm. Okay? Now, the mm-hmm. United States has yet to apologize, okay? But yeah. these Africans had a level of accountability that they said, you know what, some of us were involved in the slave trade. And so we're going to come back to this site, and we are going to pour libation, and we are going to honor these ancestors, and we're going to drum, and we're going to ask for atonement. We're going to ask for forgiveness for selling or for being involved in the selling of our brothers and sisters into slavery. So, you know... (laughs) Um, like I said, I still do remember. I do remember ceremonies at Buckrow Beach. Um, Sankofa, we're in our 10th year of doing these ceremonies. And the ceremony at Buckrow Beach, we honor the ancestors who perished in the Middle Passage. Those are the ones that the world doesn't remember. You know, we always talk about slavery when people got here. We talk about the plantations. We talk about how horrific the auction blocks were. We talk about the life on the plantation. We talk about, you know, the, the crops, the tobacco, the cotton, the cane in the Caribbean. But we don't talk about the ones that walked on to that enslavement ship but never walked off. And so my ceremony that I do at Buckrow Beach annually and that my sister Deborah does in South Carolina in Charleston and Dr. Chinzira does in St. Croix and in all these places around the world now, on the second Saturday in June, we honor our ancestors of the Middle Passage. And this is a ceremony that 
was initiated by Tony Cade Bambara, who said at a storytellers conference that we need to honor those ancestors of the Middle Passage. We need to tap into that power in the water, and we need to remember them. And so we do that, like I said, every year uh, in honor of them. So the burial ground, literally, and I'm not even saying this to be dramatic, it changed my life. It really did, mm-hmm. and and saved my life, quite honestly. Mm. Um, and saved my life. I had a dream um, that I was working at the burial ground, and I heard a voice that said, it said it twice. And I woke up from the dream, and I called my mother, and I said, I, I don't know. I don't want to leave this job, but I think it's time. And... I got another job. I was still working in that area, and that was in um, 2001, in April. I moved to Virginia. In September, September 11th, I was in my mother's kitchen looking at the television, and I saw the first plane go into the World Trade Center. And the phone rang, and it was a very good friend of mine who said, all he said on the phone was, I remember your dream. Mm. And my building was six World Trade Center, which sat adjacent to the towers. So I really feel like that was a whisper from my ancestors beyond the grave to tell me to get out, to tell me to leave. I didn't know what the message meant at the time, but I knew to pay attention to it. And I'll tell you this, no one who worked in my office, no one from the African burial ground perished during 9-11. Not one person. So while we have, you know, so many people who tragically died on that day, um, I am grateful to say that, you know, that we were spared, the people who worked at the burial ground. Nobody, either people were on their way to work, you know, they got stuck in traffic, you know, there was something, there was some reason why they didn't, they didn't make it there. But, um, yeah, ground zero, it's, you know, every year on September 11th, I, I, I pause, you know, uh-huh. in, in remembrance of the people who lost their lives there um, and uh, in gratitude of the ancestors for protecting us. You know, one of the things, too, that I think that is so remarkable is by having African-Americans lead this. I mean, yes. it took it from being, it wasn't just like an anthropological study. You brought right. life. You know, it was like you weren't just studying. You were breathing life back into that history, <laughs> not only for yes. the ancestors, but for those of us who came afterwards to understand. Yes, Michelle. Yes, 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 yes. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know what, you're, you saying that reminds me of a quote that I heard from T.D. Jakes years ago. And he said, when you find the work that you are meant to do in this world, it's as if God breathes life into you, you know, like the breath of life is, is, is breathed into your body. And that's exactly what it was. We were putting the meat back on these bones, my sister. You know, we were telling the stories. You know, I, was, I had a wonderful opportunity. I worked with um, a scholar. For me, it was the first time that I ever worked with black anthropologists, you know. Uh I was a student of anthropology. All my professors were of European descent, and many of them were wonderful, you know. 
But I never had the experience of seeing and hearing anthropology out of someone who looked like me. And it was, it was very empowering. One of the, the scholars that I worked with um, is a man by the name of Dr. Lee Baker. And he was a um, professor at Columbia. I went and I did a, a lecture, a uh, slide presentation, historical slide presentation um, at his class. And, you know, we would go in and we would talk about the artifacts that were found. We would talk about the fact that we found a woman buried with waist beads, that we found a mother and child with the arm cooked around the baby. We found people with dental modification. The teeth had been shaped, um, which is a tradition which is practiced in Africa. We found um, metal um, packs that were on top of one of the coffins um, he was known as, as the Sankofa man because he was in the shape of a heart, which is one of the symbols of Sankofa. Um, so we, you know, I would go in and we, we would also talk about the work stresses, the nutritional stresses, that these Africans were literally worked to death. And wow. um, so, you know, Dr. Baker said to me, you know, he was the, I believe, the, the editor of... Uh, he had a role in the uh, Association for Black Anthropologists journal that they produced. It's called Transforming Anthropology. And he said, you know, he wrote a letter to my director saying that I was so passionate about this burial that it was burial number 25. And if I would, she allow me to write an article for the journal. And it wound up being my first publication. And I wrote it about burial number 25. And I just want to tell you, Michelle and Kizzy, about burial number 25 just for a moment. Because burial 25 was 21 years old. She had a Lafort fracture to her face, which means she was hit with a blunt object, which crushed her face. And she had a musket ball, which was the bullet of the day, lodged in her ribs. So she was murdered. Mm. And... When I, when I think about burial number 25, and I was saying this the other day, that burial number 25, she was a black woman in New York, 21 years old, brutally, brutally murdered. She is no different than Breonna Taylor, than Sandra Bland. Mm -hmm. You know, when we draw the connection to this disregard for black women and this disregard for black women's lives, you know, Orgy Lord talks about the fact that, you know, our blood has been spilled. You know, no more black women's blood on the concrete. You know, we, we have this history of misogynoir. We have this history of disrespect um, towards black women. And so, you know, burial number 25, although she lived in the 1700s, you fast forward to 2020 and 2021 and you ask yourself, what has changed? Right? I mean, she was an enslaved woman, so clearly her life was very different than someone like Brianna. But this disregard for her black life, this disregard for her humanity as a person mm -hmm. has not changed. And that's something that I think we really need to, to look at, you know, whether it's Dr. Marion Sims doing, you know, gynecological exams on Anarka and Lucy, you know, the, the women who he butchered, yet he's considered the father of gynecology, mm -hmm. or whether it's Sarah Bartman, who they know is hot and mm -hmm. hot Venus, who 
her uh, body parts, I'll leave it as that, were taken to a museum and put on exhibit, or Nat Turner. When Nat Turner, you know, um, revolted and they skinned him alive and made um, wallets out of his skin. You know, this dehumanization of black people is something that I think this country really needs to look at. We really need to, you know, so when people are saying, oh, yeah, slavery happened so long ago, you know, why are you still talking about it? It has persisted. Like Brian Stevenson said, slavery didn't, didn't end, it evolved. It evolved into what we have today. And so, you know, we are in the middle of COVID, we're in the middle of this pandemic, we have high rates of black people dying, you know, um, you have frontline workers that have to go to work. They don't have the luxury to be at home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need, to, we need to look, we need to really take an honest look at all of this. If we as a humanity, which is what, I, which is what my hope is, if we hope to heal from these pains of the past, we have to be honest and take a look at what racism and what oppression and what injustice and sexism and homophobia and all these phobias and isms, what they've done to us as a people, you know? And, you know, and it's how you talk about um, how these things continue. I mean, because even now we have this big um, conversation about raising the minimum wage and who it really affects. Uh, I mean, when you look at people who are on the wait staff and they're talking about what they get from tipping, but tipping originated. It dates back to slavery. In part, I was at one thing, and and there was someone who Mm -hmm. said that they didn't want to pay newly freed slaves fairly because they were like, well, why should we pay them, you know, a living wage tip so that they have to work really, really hard for this this pittance. And now that, you know, so these things, like you said, they don't go away. But, you know, if you don't know your history, you don't see that this is just a continuation of oppression of black people. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And you know what's so interesting about that, Michelle? You You know, I see, for me, eating as a sacred act, okay, because you are feeding your temple, you know. Um, so why wouldn't you want to pay the people who are preparing your food, which is going to help you live? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like this is not, this is not someone who is, you know, in, in the retail industry, which is helping you maybe look great. This is someone who is providing nutrients for your body and your soul so that you're healthy, so that you live, right, so that you're able to maintain your being. You know, the fact that, you know, that, that yeah, that, that they did not want to pay Africans. So tipping, you know, grew out of that. I mean, there's so much of the history that is mm-hmm. hidden. There's so much of the history that people are unaware of. Um, and, you know, I always tell people, you know, we're in Black History Month, and, you know, for me it's the busiest time of year for me, <laughs> um, Black History Month as well as uh, December or Kwanzaa events. And, you know, I think it was Toni Morrison that said, you know, American means white because everyone else has to hyphenate. And so mm. if we could figure out a way to incorporate African-American history, Native American history, the history of women, 
LGBT history, the history of Asian Americans, the history of, 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 of everyone, okay, if we could figure out a way to incorporate everyone's history within the curriculum, you know, we could still celebrate because I think you still should have, you know, for, for what Carter G. Woodson went through and what, for what our ancestors went through, yes, let Black History Month still be Black History Month. Let November yeah. still be Native History Month. Let March be Women's History Month. However, we need to do a better job. There needs to be more work done to make sure that education is inclusive, that all the faces are represented. I used to say when I used to teach kids, you know, in New York, um, I used to go out into the schools and I would have presentations and I would work with the children. Part of the reasons why I think the children were so disinterested, and even today, is because they don't see themselves. The only thing uh-huh. that they see is slavery, they see Martin Luther King, and they might see, you know, Rosa Parks. That's uh-huh. it. Mm-hmm. Are they learning about, you know, um, um, Rebecca Lee Crumpler, who was the first African-American woman physician? You know, are they learning about, you know, Dr. Katherine Johnson, who without her calculations, mm-hmm. you know, Neil Armstrong would have never made it to the moon. He specifically asked for her because he knew of her brilliance. That it was a black woman that helped this white man get to the moon. That is important, and that gives our children a sense of pride. If you think your history begins with slavery, it didn't. History happened, slavery happened on the continuum of the African experience. It is not our beginning. It, it happened along the continuum. So we need to go back, which is, you know, the relevance of Sankofa. Sankofa teaches us to go back and fetch our history. And part of that fetching is going back to the beginning, the origins. And when we go back to the origins, we will realize that, you know, the earliest remains were found um, in Africa. It is called the cradle of civilization for a reason, that mm-hmm. African-Americans that African-descended people are the mothers and fathers of civilization, period. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. our children need to know that. So that way they feel empowered, you know, when they're learning, that they know that they come from something. And, and not only our kids, but kids from European descent need to know the history, the contributions with which Natives and Africans contributed to this place, to this land to the building of America. You mentioned Katherine Johnson um, yes. a brief moment ago, and she was one of the phenomenal uh, black female mathematicians and physicians that worked for uh, NASA, and you had yes. the wonderful opportunity to, you know, work with her and honor her. What was that relationship and work like? Oh, I have to tell you. It was... It was you know, I always say, Kizzy, that, you know, part of what I came here to do, I feel like my job on this earth, is to remind us of who we were before they told us who we were, you know, mm-hmm. to unearth these, these stories about our past and to give voice to them. I've been doing that for so long. And so when I came across Katherine Johnson, I was actually doing a program for a Women's History Month um, for my organization, Sankofa, at the Hampton History Museum in Virginia. 
And they had this placard on the wall about Katherine Johnson, this write-up about her. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So I came home, and I told my mother, I, you know, I read about this woman. She's amazing. And my mother says, I know her. I'm like, what do you mean you know her? And she's like, she goes to my church. And I'm thinking, she's in her 90s, you know? So I said, Mom, we have to call. So we get out the directory. We call. Her daughters were in town, her daughters, Joylette and Kathy. They picked up the phone. My mother's explaining. My daughter's an anthropologist. She loves, you know, unearthing history. This is what she does. She would love to meet your mother. They say, sure, come on over. So the funny part of the story is I had on sweatpants. And I, you know, immediately went to Burlington and I bought an outfit. I bought flowers because I was like, I am not <laughs> going to meet this woman in sweatpants. So, so, you know, I got dressed. I bought flowers for everyone. And my mother went with me and I walked in and I sat and I literally held her hand for over an hour because I was touching history. And it just... Her daughters were so wonderful. Um, they were so gracious. They invited me in. And this is before the movie. This is before she got the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And I'm thinking to myself, so they're like, well, how do you know about mom? How do you know about mama? And I'm like, well, she's on the wall in the museum. And they said, well, we have to go take mama. I said, you can't just take her. Let me plan something to honor her. That was the first uh-huh. program that I did. We celebrated her 96th birthday at the museum. We had her sorority sisters of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated come. We sang to her. We had the mayor there. Um, It was a beautiful event. From that time, I built a relationship with the family. They were selling the mother's house, and I was there helping them pack with my kids. I brought boxes, you know, and I'm sitting there with them, and, and this man was there. His name is uh, Michael Chapman. And they said, you need to talk to Michael about the bench. Um, You know, Mm. we've been trying to get this bench for Mama in the city, and we haven't been able to, um, you know, navigate the red tape. And so he and I start talking about it. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. You know, Hampton is a place where slavery began. Here you have another narrative that the city of Hampton could embrace that is talking about a woman mm. who changed the trajectory of, of space exploration. What do you mean you're not able to get anybody on the phone? What do you mean that no one, you know, that this has not been done? So I immediately got on the horn. I started calling everyone I know. I called, you know, um, people in the city. Um, I called the convention center. Um, the, I mean, the, uh, the visitors bureau. I contacted my connect at the Hampton History Museum, uh, Lucy Cochran and Seamus Negran. I contacted everybody that I could, and we sat down for a meeting, and I wrote up a proposal of the Katherine Johnson Bench Project. The money had already been um, um, donated through the National Technical Association, which is the, which is the oldest black STEM organization in the country. So they had the money sitting. And so I pretty much met with everybody. And Mr. Chapman and I worked together. We got together with some of the other members of the uh, NTA. And um, uh, 
you know, Dr. Darden, who was also who also worked in NASA, was involved in that. Um, and we also had um, uh, Jinx uh, also was involved in that. And um, we basically figure out a plot of land that, you know, Dr. Johnson said that she wanted, that she would like for the bench to be. And in seven months, a bench was sitting in the city of Hampton honoring Dr. Johnson, and we had a huge event to honor her, um, and, and it was beautiful, and she was able to see her bench. And that bench now sits mm-hmm. across from the Virginia Air and Space Center, and it's a landmark in the city now that says that this woman made a contribution to the world, um, made a contribution to Hampton, made a contribution to Virginia, and um, that's how we honor her. It was a beautiful, beautiful event. And um, I had since kept in contact with the family, and, you know, she passed last year. And so there were a group of us called the K-Team who worked together to, um, to lay her to rest. And it was right before COVID hit, um, and I was in charge mm. of dealing with NASA and the dignitaries and making sure that we had you know, um, you know, the mayors and the congressmen, Congressman Bobby Scott, and we had, you know, the astronauts that were involved, the black astronauts also were a part of that event. Uh, It was wonderful. It was really um, a full circle moment to be able to work with her and sit at her feet and hold her hand and do PR for her. That's what I did. I did. I wanted to do PR for Dr. Johnson for years, um, and it was an honor, you know, and then, of course, the movie came out, and then, of course, you know, the book came out by Margot, which was really wonderful, and, you know, she was able to get her due, you know, the world paid attention and, and acknowledged that this woman made a great contribution um, and changed the trajectory of, of what space exploration was and it's due to this black woman and the other black women who were involved so yeah so to be able to walk her home so to speak um was an honor it was truly an honor and my my k team uh you know shauna and then sean glover and uh shauna epps sean glover and then the daughters and i worked um to give her a really beautiful funeral. And right after that, we were shut down. Um, the world shut down because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And we had a 1,000 people at her funeral. So there's no wow, way in the world. that's beautiful. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's just really amazing that that time, we were given that time to say goodbye to her. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm going to tell you one story before we go to break. You know, it is important, the work that you do, that that we breathe life into our history and into the good and bad. Because I'll tell you, I was at, and this was, I would say, like two years ago when they started talking about uh, an affordable wage. And Mm. someone, there were people there, you know, and some of them are progressive. And as you understand what, the history behind some of this, it can make a change and really can. make people start to. And what was interesting that one of the people who was there was Jane Fonda. 
Ah, I love Jean. <laughs> and there was somebody there who was progressive, who was saying, you know, who has said, you know, wanted to play devil's advocate because, you know, if someone gave good service, you know, they got a good tip from him, and he was always the best, never, you know, kept to that. And she broke down what she had wow. learned about tipping. Mm-hmm. Now, what mm. she said to him from her platform as a liberal white woman who had learned yeah. about where tipping came from moved him more than what yeah. activists have been there up there talking about how prim- primarily black, mostly women, were at these minimum mm-hmm. wage jobs and who were doing it, sometimes working two and three jobs and could not prepare for his family. But if we did not have visibility, if we didn't dig deep and expose these things, we'll never get it because, you know, those who who would deny us would continue to deny us until they learn. Yeah. No, you're right. It's imperative. It's imperative that we dig deep, Michelle. It is. And, you know, the allies... I, it, it, you know, it, it also speaks to the importance of having allies because in 2021 there are places where we three would not be welcomed, right? Mm-hmm. But there may mm-hmm. be someone who could go in who doesn't look like us or maybe is a different gender than us can go in and have a conversation and that could open doors. So I think there's, there's a benefit in having allies. We have to be willing at least in my feeling, I think we should be willing to reach across the table to people who have the same moral fiber of us, you know, they're, they're rooted in justice and equality and equity, you know, because that can take whatever movement we're working on that much further, you know, if we work together. And, you know, and, and yes, it makes people feel uncomfortable, which I yeah. thought was really, you know, really good to hear someone who, has privilege who recognized that a lot of their privilege and what they thought when they were just like being good and, you know, tipping them a little extra, that they were perpetuating a system that needed to be identified, broke down, and changed. And, you know, look, it's not always like learning can be difficult, (laughs) but sometimes, you know what, you got to break it down and tell them. Well, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you know, (laughs) Last time I checked, you know, no one asked were my ancestors comfortable when they were, you know, in a plantation working from sunup to sundown. So, you know, I don't really worry about people's discomfort because we need to work through that. This is not about being comfortable because, you know, racism is not comfortable for me not one day. Sexism is not comfortable for me either. And living as a black woman um, in a country that is sexist and misogynist and as, you know, Uh um, Moya Bailey says, you know, um, you know, dealing with misogynoir, you know, the, the particular um, effect of being a black woman dealing in a culture that doesn't respect us, no one asks whether or not I'm comfortable. So I don't really, I don't really worry about others' comfort. I, I, I want to have mm-hmm. honest conversations. I think they're necessary. They're difficult, but they're necessary. And that's the only way we're going to move this pendulum forward. The only way we're going to move this forward is if we have conversations that are rooted in truth, not comfort. It's not about comfort. 
Well, we're going to con- we're going to take a break, and we're going to continue our conversation that is rooted in truth. Um, in just a minute, so we'll be right back. <laughs> This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and we are talking about our community. We are talking about anthropology. We are talking about the the ancestors with our guest, Shadra Pettman. Shadra, um, talk about, first of all, you are doing this work, and tell us a little bit more about what got you to Virginia. Okay, so, you know, I was in New York uh, working at the African Burial Ground Project. After that, I did pharmaceutical sales for a while, and um, really what got me to Virginia was my my family. Um, My mother was having some health challenges, and she and my sister had moved to Virginia, and I was in New York. My dad was still there, but... I was making these trips back and forth to check on my mother, and I mm-hmm. basically asked for a transfer uh, to my manager, yeah. and there was a position in Richmond, so I moved to Richmond initially, and then um, probably a year later, I moved down to the Hampton uh, area, Hampton, Newport News area. So it was family that got me to, got me to Virginia. Mm-hmm. And you're also the founder of uh, the Sankofa Project. Uh, one thing, yes. what does Sankofa mean and, you know, what inspired you to create that? Well, thank you. Yes, Sankofa was inspired from my work. Once again, back to the burial ground. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the remains uh, that was uncovered of a man skeletal remains of a man who was very tall. I believe it was Burial 101. He was known as the, as the Sankofa Man because on top of his coffin there were metal tacks that were in the shape of one of the symbols of Sankofa. Also the movie by Halle Jerema, Sankofa, moved me. I saw that in the 90s. And so mm. I really loved the notion of what Sankofa represented. So Sankofa is is one of the Adinkra symbols of the Akan people of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. And so basically, uh, it's, it's a funerary cloth. Adinkras are funerary cloths that are given to loved ones when they, when they pass on into the ancestral realm. And typically, you give your loved one a message. So the symbol of Sankofa, there are three symbols, two of which are hearts. The third one is a bird. 
And the bird, if you could imagine, close your eyes and imagine a bird with the feet pointing forward, the head pointing backward, and on top of the back of the bird, there's an egg. So the symbolism of Sankofa is that in order to know where you're going with the feet pointing forward, you have to know where you've come from, which is why the bird's head mm. is pointing back at its tail. The egg represents the future. So yeah. I, I love that notion of, you know, in order to know who we are, we have to go back. We have to touch our history. We have to dig up. We have to unearth who we were, who our ancestors were, so that we have a better understanding of who we are and who we want to be. So, you know, when I moved to Virginia, I realized that, you know, Virginia is known as the mother state of slavery. You know, it is where in 1619, 20 and odd African men, women, and children um, were brought to Point Comfort which is now known as Fort Monroe. It's a national monument. Um, and so I decided, you know, wow, you know, we have such rich history right here in Virginia. So I started doing programs, educational and cultural programs that were rooted in the African diaspora, rooted in the African-American experience, and uh, started to do social justice work also with Sankofa. And then I also realized that Point Comfort or Fort Monroe was not only the place where Africans uh, disembarked the White Line, which was the name of the ship that came into the dock there. It was also the place where, in 1861, three black men petitioned for their freedom during the Civil War. Um, they petitioned for their freedom to Benjamin Butler, and they it caused thousands of Africans to come to Fort Monroe for their freedom. They were known as the contraband. So Butler said, General Butler said that anyone who was enslaved that made it to Fort Monroe's gate would be protected. They would be considered contrabands of war. So I'm thinking, oh my goodness. So Virginia is a place where these 20 and odd Africans came. Virginia is a place where where these thousands of Africans walked to Fort Monroe for their freedom. You know, these are the bookends of slavery, the beginning and the end. Then I thought, but nobody's talking about the middle. Hmm. What happened in the middle? You know, they didn't just get here. And the reality is, so with Sankofa, we know that, that there, were, there were Africans, according to Dr. John, uh, Dr. Eisenman Sutterman, there were Africans who were in America before 1619, okay? So there was an African, African presence. You had Estevanico, who was one of the early explorers that came in the 1500s. But if you look at the dates for slavery, 1619 and then the end of slavery with the contraband decision and the, and the, the Emancipation Proclamation in 1865, the middle was not being told. And so... I figured, I said, you know, <laughs> we're doing a disservice to this history if we don't honor the ones who traverse the Middle Passage. Dr. John Henry Clark said that if the Atlantic Ocean were to dry up, it would reveal a scattered pathway of uh -huh. bones, African bones marking 
the various routes, bones going to Bahia, bones going to Spain, bones going to North America. And so, like I was mentioning before about Tony K. Bambara, Tony K. Bambara said in 1989, I believe, that he was at the Storyteller Conference and said, we need to honor our ancestors. We need to honor the ones who jumped off those enslavement ships. We need to honor the ones who did not make it. The reality is that millions of our ancestors walked onto the enslavement ships and never walked off. Many of them died in the barracoons. Many of them died in the castles awaiting the ships to come. Many of them died, were thrown overboard. They were healthy. And when they began to run out of water and food on the enslavement ships, what do you think they did with the excess humans on the ship? Uh They threw them overboard. Many of our ancestors jumped to refuse a life of enslavement. There's a story of the Igbo people who were taken off of the enslavement ship and walked right back into the water and did a mass suicide, a drowning, because they did not want to be enslaved. So I decided to, to create this, you know, this, this ceremony with the help of John and Jerry um, Spruce, who are my sisters and brothers who live in Virginia, and Imani and uh, Dimitri and the drummers and Ogunjami. Um, who is the spiritual head, um, we decided to come together and create this remembrance ceremony. And we're now in our 10th year. Remembrance is practiced, as I said, all over the world. My girlfriend, uh, Deborah Wright, does it in Charleston, South Carolina, New York. They have the Coney Island remembrance that happens um, in the Virgin Islands. We have Dr. Chinzira at Per Ankh University, who does the remembrance ceremony. We're all pouring libations. We're honoring these Africans. And this is really the funeral that they never received. Mm-hmm. So it's a celebration of their lives, and we're honoring the history that was never told. Because we don't talk about these Africans. We talk about once they got here. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about the passage, the journey, the arduous passage, which... The United Nations says that it is the largest and most inhumane migration, forced migration in history. Mm-hmm. And so we do this mm-hmm. to honor them. Yeah. You know, uh, and it is true that people think, uh, you know, it's like, okay, we got on the boat, we got off, and then we started to work. But there's more. There's yeah. so much more. So much more. Mm-hmm. And, you it's know, still- honoring our ancestors you know, is also the work of putting our ancestors to to peace and letting their spirit to rest. And, you know, in doing that work of honoring them is also liberating themselves and ourselves from that trauma. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's an act of healing, but I'm sure that it's also an act of resistance. Can you speak on, you know, this, this work that you do as an act of resistance? Yes. So, you know, you know, my work is centered on remembrance, right, of the famous and the forgotten. Um, so everyone from, let's say, Katherine Johnson or ta Coates to, um, to the Africans who wound up in the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. You know, remembrance of sacred places like Fort Monroe, 
places that hold mm. memory of what happened there, and then critical time periods um, that have happened. And so my work, you know, remembrance is one of the aspects of my work. Resistance is a huge part of my work, and also retentions, cultural retentions, the way we held on to our culture. You know, resistance is huge because a lot of times when we think about slavery, we don't talk about the mutinies that took place on board the enslavement ships. We don't talk about the insurrections. We don't talk about the fact that Africans resisted at every turn. And so part of what I feel like my role is in telling and retelling and unearthing and giving voice to these stories is to speak to the, the uh, resilience of our ancestors, the, the, the self-determination that they had, you know, the kujichakalia, as we say, right? Um, when I do ceremony, I, I incorporate modern-day uh, occurrences of injustice. I started this some years ago after Trayvon was killed, and we always do core libations. So not only the ones who perished in the Middle Passage, but also to those who were killed on this soil. And we go back to, you know, Eleanor Bumpers. We go back to Amadou Diallo. We go back to um, George Stinney. We go back to um, Mary Turner, who was a pregnant woman who was lynched uh, in Georgia. Uh, We talk about those aspects of racism and injustice and inhumanity that has been perpetuated on black and brown people. We talk about the Native American genocide. I also talk about rape and I talk about domestic violence because one of the most violent things that occurred to black people has been slavery. I mean, it is, it is, it is a violation of our personhood. It is an attack on our humanity and it's important to talk about that because when you think about slavery and you think about the, the, the brutalization of black women's bodies, black women, there was no law to protect black women from being raped. You know, as a matter of fact, you know, when the international trade was outlawed, the way in which African babies or slavery continued was through the rape of black women in many cases by the enslaver. You know, uh-huh. Reese Taylor, you know, the story of the woman who was, uh, was raped. Uh, there's a book, a, a really wonderful book, um, in, At the Dark End of the Street. Uh, I have to pull up the author's name for you. But At the Dark End of, end of the Street, and she talks about the real reason why, and this is another untold story, the real reason why Rosa Parks was in Montgomery, you know, um, uh, you know, she wasn't sitting on that bus because she was tired and she was a seamstress. She was hired by the NAACP as, a, as an investigator to investigate the rapes of black women by white men in the South. That's mm-hmm. also a story that's not talked about. I mm-hmm. wish they could tell our children that story. She wasn't just sitting there because she was tired. She was investigating black women being brutally raped by white men in the South. And so, you know, her job, you know, speaking to the resistance that she had, the kind of fortitude that she had to come down South 
and to challenge these systems of power um, was incredible. And so, yeah, we resisted at every turn. We did not take slavery uh, into our arms and embrace it. We fought. And one of the ways that we fought was the way in which we refer, the way in which we refer to ourselves. We have documentation from the African burial ground that proves that Africans during slavery did not refer to themselves as colored, did not refer to themselves as Negroes. They referred to mm. themselves as Africans time and time and time again. Um, the way in which they formed their organizations, the, the African Free School, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, they continuously used the word African in the title. And, you know, so I always tell people that what I need them to do is to give respect to our ancestors. You know, call them the names that they would have called themselves. They refer to themselves as Africans, so we need to do that as, as, as such. You know, if we're going to refer to them, refer to them as enslaved Africans. Because the reality is slavery is a condition, right, that was forced upon them. But these were African people who lived their lives, who brought their culture here with them, who buried their dead with care. You know, like I said, the burial of the mother and child where they, they literally took the arm and wrapped it around the infant skeletal remains. They wrapped it around the baby's body. Why? Because the people who, who were burying them cared for them. So it shows that even in the midst of an inhumane and horrendous situation like slavery, black people held on to each other. Africans, enslaved Africans held on to each other, maintained their families as best as they could, buried their dead with dignity, and, you know, gave humanity back to one another where they didn't see it in the larger community. Um, so we've always resisted. We've always resisted and we've always held on to our culture. One of the ways that I like to tell people that is that when you see a young guy, you know, in inner cities, if someone passed away, often we see young brothers outside with, let's say, a 40, right, a bottle uh -huh. of some kind of beer, pouring it on the ground for their homies. I don't know if they're still doing that because I'm not out there. But, but back in the day when someone passed away, that was, that was, it was an act that we would do. Now, where did these young brothers get that from? That's, that's, that's a libation, is it not? Uh -huh. It is a ritualistic yep. pouring of liquid, calling upon the name mm -hmm. of the deceased brother or sister who's passed on. Clearly, they may not have gone to Africa. They may not have gone to Nigeria and seen a libation take place. But something within them knew that that's what we are supposed to do. We honor the dead, and we don't even know we're honoring them. But we do it, you know, subconsciously. It's in our DNA. It is the culture is within us. And so, yes, we came across to these different places on these enslavement ships, but we did not lose our culture. We maintained it. And, um, you know, and, you know, and that's the thing that, you know, how often, how back then when uh, we were considered part of stock, you know, yeah. but, you yeah. know, 
uh, a cow, a pig. I mean, it's, it, it has been someone's dinner. But here we were, you know, I know, I don't know if you ever saw the exhibit that they had at the Museum of African American History here in Detroit where they showed yeah. how tightly packed, Oh, you know, we were on these ships. But oh, yeah. despite that and being ripped away from our families, again, like you said, these, cult, these cultural traditions, we continued, yeah, you know, and that even from then to today, they're still there. We're still Absolutely. practicing them. Yes, yes. Joseph Holloway talks about that, the Africanisms, you know, the way in which we've held on to our culture and maintained our culture through an incredibly arduous time that we're still living through. But, you know, why did they decide to bury that woman with her waist beads and bracelets? Right? Mm-hmm. Why did they wrap these Africans in in cloth and shroud them? They faced them in such a way so that if they sat up, they would be facing east. These are all burial practices, mm. and these people were enslaved, but they held on to it. They knew it was important enough that even at death, that they would, you know, give culture back to their beloved. You know, and I think that that. That's a way, Kizzy, during slavery, I think that we showed that we resisted, that we held on to it in spite of. Because, you know, before we were loaded onto these enslavement ships, before they, after they took us from the interior down to these barracoons and to these castles and had us waiting in these, din- these dungeons, um, dark dungeons, very little light, very little food, um, you know, sitting in excrement. I mean, they had us in these, these horrible conditions. Ah. Oh, I hear it. <laughs> I know that song. I know that song. Oh, my goodness. I know that song. Sankofa, yes. You know, you know, they had us in these conditions, and... You know, even through it all, we maintained, you know, our connection to our culture. They had us walk around in Benin, in Waida, a tree of forgetfulness. They believed, the enslavers believed that, you know, as my friend uh, 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 Daniel Purifoy wrote a piece in Scalawag magazine, and she said that, you know, it was as if they had the... Uh, this tree had uh, p- powers of amnesia. They wanted Africans to forget where we came from. So they had men walk around the tree nine times and women and children walk around the tree seven times, hoping that their memory of Africa would be erased. There's also legend that says that Africans, before they loaded the enslavement ship, that they picked up dirt and they put it in their mouths so they could take their homeland with them. Mm. Um, so in Virginia, when we do remembrance, we have a tree that, that Baba Ogunjami refers to as the tree of remembrance. And we walk mm. around the tree annually as a part of the ritual, saying to our ancestors that we have not forgotten you, that we remember you, that you live with us, that you are here with us, that you are present in, in our lives. And a couple of years ago, they cut the tree down. The city cut the yeah, tree that's down. Yeah, that's right. I asked about that. Uh-huh. Yeah, they cut the tree down. 
So, yeah, with no input, I mean, did they recognize that that it was part of a ritual? I mean, you know, no input from the community? Well, it's it's a complicated story because I didn't know the tree was cut until a friend of mine who was running on the beach said, the tree is gone, Shadra. The tree is not there. And I'm like, what do you mean? So when I went to the land, the, the, the plot of land, I saw that it had been cut down to a tree stump. We had dealt with some racist, uh, you know, we, when we come to the site, you know, it, it, it's hundreds of black and brown people and other people who come to Remembrance wearing African clothing, you know, uh-huh. playing the djembe and the, the, the shekere and the congas. You know, we are there, we're making a presence. We are honoring, it's a funeral. We are honoring our dead. And so there are people who live on the beach who, quite frankly, some of them I'm sure don't want us there. We were out there one year and someone hung up a Confederate flag as we were having our ceremony. Um, I got confronted on the beach one year um, by a man who told me that I was littering the beach by, you know, we put flowers into the water to honor our ancestors. So... You know, when I confronted the city, uh, I had a meeting with the city about the tree. Uh, I met with the parks, the parks and recreation people, and, you know, there were multiple stories that came out of it. You know, some said that the tree was sick, which I don't know how the tree was sick because it was this beautiful tree. It didn't look sick. Mm-hmm. It didn't have branches that were, you know, if anything, I'd probably think the tree was poisoned. I don't think the tree was sick. Other people said that the mm. tree blocked the view of the beach. So basically it was in the way of the people who lived behind the tree. I will say that, you know, when I, when I made this uh, plea to the city, I said to them that, you know, this tree holds significance. So I wrote a proposal to the city about either a tree planting ceremony, a replanting ceremony, or asking that they put some kind of memorial there to honor our presence there but it wasn't going to stop us from coming so that Mm -hmm. next year we had remembrance we walked around a tree stump i put my foot on top of the stump i stood in that space and talked about that tree and talked about the significance because in the same way we were ripped out of the continent of africa is the same way they cut down this tree but you know what the roots remain strong just like our roots mm-hmm. remain strong, although we were taken from our homeland. So, you know, I, I'm in talks with the city now uh, about what's going to happen next with regards to the tree, uh, with regards to that space. Um, but, you know, the people that I work with in the city at the Hampton History Museum have been really wonderful. Mayor Tuck, who is, um, comes to Remembrance every year, has been phenomenal. Um, our, the vice mayor, who was really a part of um, Sankofa and the remembrance ceremony from the beginning, um, her name is Linda Curtis. She was very supportive. So I do think that the city recognizes the importance of that tree, that it is a part of the ritual. We've had thousands of people walk around that tree. So I would love to say that I'll be able to give you an update and say that something really wonderful has happened, you know, 
in honor of our work around Sankofa and around remembrance of the Middle Passage. Um, so I guess I would just say, you know, we need to stay tuned on that and kind of see what develops. But it didn't stop us from coming. If mm-hmm. anything, it made more of us come out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, I thought, I mean, because I was looking at the video, and that's when the sound came in, because it's so beautiful. I mean, to see the drumming, mm-hmm. the people dancing, there's that sense of not mm-hmm. only resilience, but joy and homecoming yes. that, you know, it just yes. really, you know, I mean, it's just like there was a woman I saw in one where she was sitting there. I mean, she's got her oxygen thing on, but there she is in her yes. fight. And she's just like, home. That's what, that's what you get as you watch it. One Absolutely. word, home. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that woman, let me tell you, Michelle, because we're talking about greats, right? That woman mm-hmm. is the honorable Dr. Mary T. Christian. She was a delegate for Virginia. Um, she was uh, and is a staple in Virginia history. And she came out to remembrance and read an incredible poem that she wrote about being an African woman, about being an African child, about slavery. And she was in her 90s when she came out in her wheelchair. And one of the Uh images that we have, which I always treasure, is of her throwing her flower into the water in honor of these ancestors. And she also is now an ancestor. She passed um, in 2019. She became an ancestor. So, yeah, you know, we have so many people that come out. uh, And it's a joyous, it's a sad occasion, just like a funeral. You know, you Uh come out, you are mourning the, 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 the loss of life, but then you're celebrating you know, we uh-huh. are giving back to these ancestors. We are remembering them. We are saying that you have not been forgotten. That is the gift that we, the descendants, give to them. So we come, we sing, we pour libations. We have Crystal Sessoms, who's a sister of mine, who has an organization called Seed of Hope. She sang uh, the Black National Anthem with Zach, who also has an organization. People come and they read poetry. Um, a young woman um, who is a sweetheart came and played her violin. So not only do we have the drums, but we have the violin. You know, we're showing the full complexity of the black experience, the black cultural experience, from the scholarly to the cultural to the spiritual. So it's really a really beautiful event. I hope you and Kizzy have a chance to come when the world heals and we're able to come back and be in the same space again together. uh, I would love to have you there with us at Buckler Beach. What what, what are you thinking for 2021? Well, 2021 is going to be virtual. You know, last year we had Mm -hmm. to have a virtual ceremony. This year we're going to do the same because COVID is not over and I Mm -hmm. would not Remembrance is not the place. Like, I, I know, as, as we say about things, I know my people, right? So mm-hmm. remembrance is the kind of ceremony where we are going to get together and we are going to hug and we are going to cry mm. and we are going to hold hands and we're going to be in each other's faces because that's what it is. So we can't meet because we are not going to be able to adhere to guidelines of separating. It would just 
it would be such a different kind of feeling okay. for the ceremony. So what we're asking people to do, like we did in 2020, which is, you know, be at home or be out in a park somewhere distance away from someone or go to a beach if that's what you want to do. But we'll have the ceremony on Facebook. It will be streamed live. Um, our partners, uh, the Hampton History Museum, have been wonderful. They came in the second year of the ceremony and have supported Remembrance. Uh, it's just it's just. And the community comes out, you know, through drumming and pouring libations and poetry reading. All of that will be done virtually. And really, I have to tell you, last year, people in Nigeria were watching. We had people, I believe, who chimed in who were in Cuba. I mean, it went everywhere. We had thousands of views. And so even when we returned to the in-person ceremony, I believe we will always have a virtual ceremony because it allows people across the diaspora to be there with us on this special day, you know. It allows us to be in communion. Um, so that's, uh, so yes, so it will be virtual once again, and hopefully in 2022 we'll be able to be together again. That, that's my hope. I hope so. I hope so. Although, you know, Excuse me. It's something that, you know, I hope that people do, like you said, something, it makes it accessible to so many more. I mean, I would love to see that um, some education thing, places and, and churches and things yes. sort of like catch on. And here virtually mm. they can, they can plug in. It's just like, no, we know that now you have this year, and last year yes. you heard more people talking, well, recently, about Juneteenth than before yes. and turning yeah. to things to look at. So to also to do that about remembrance because this yes. is all part of our history, of our coming to be who we are, you know, and, and to not be able to to be in that space and not be able to, to do that hug and that touch and, you know, that would be – I don't know. I mean, it just wouldn't. It just wouldn't work for us, you know. So yeah. we'll do it virtually. Yeah. Exactly. We'll do it virtually, exactly. you know. Keep everybody safe, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so people true. can mark their their calendar. What is the date going to be? It's it's going to be June thirteenth this year. It mm-hmm. is. Um, check the calendar again. It's so funny. I was talking to the museum a couple of days ago. Um, looking at the ceremony and talking about, uh, no, June 12th, I'm sorry, June 12th. Last year was the 13th. This year it's going to be June 12th, uh, 2021. It's going to be at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So, you know, please, you know, um, figure out your time zone so you can, you know, participate Mm -hmm. with us. It will be on Facebook and it will be through the Senecofa Project with an S. And, uh, yeah, so please, you know, please join us. We would love, love, love to have mm-hmm. um, have your listeners participate. And if there are remembrance ceremonies that are happening maybe in their cities virtually, that's the way they can participate uh, also, you know. Well, maybe we can make that happen. Well, we're going to take yeah, our second we... break. Okay. And because um, you talked briefly about, forever and I'd like to go back and talk more about that so we will be right there okay wonderful 
Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back here in Collections by Michelle Brown, and we're, Kizzy and I are talking with Shadra Pittman, and, I mean, girl, you are busy. <laughs> but, you know, you are busy. But, you know, there's an intersectionality in all you do because you can't talk about our history without talking about rape, not only rape by oppressors, but also rape that that, that happens. You know, it, it's yes. women, black women are often raped, um, not taken seriously. There's, there's still that stigma where it was something that you did going back to slavery. Well, somehow or other, by the way our bodies were made or something, we just tempted these men to, to, to rape us. But it's real. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did you come to start Forever. Yeah, well, I tell you, you know, I, at an early age, I knew of women, you know, being in college, um, there were women, friends of mine, who uh, suffered sexual violence. Um, I myself um, had an abusive boyfriend um, as a young girl and didn't tell anybody, was scared to talk about it. And, you know, and so I knew that I needed to do something around the violence. I knew it was pervasive. I knew that the more women that I talked to, it seemed like everybody had a story. Everybody had Mm -hmm. a domestic violence story. Everybody had either it was them or their aunt or their cousin. And we know that one in three women will experience some form of violence in their life. And so I just was very, um, very moved to do something, you know, like I said, you know, my, 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 my DNA, something in my DNA is, you know, is activism is in there, you know, so I'm like, Mm -hmm. something happens, I identify a problem. I'm like, okay, what do we need to do to fix that? We need to shine, as Ida B. Wells says, shine the light of truth on it. We're going to talk about it. And I often tell people, you know, I'm the one at the dinner party that is talking about race, R-A-C-E, and rape, Mm -hmm. R-A-P-E. I'm not the one for the light conversation. Um, I'm going to go deep because I think it's important that we have conversations that matter. And so, you know, I started forever and forever. It's an acronym. The four stands for the four corners of the earth or the four directions, as in the natives would say. So in the four directions of the earth, we wish to E-V-E-R, end violence, end rape. And so with forever, you know, some of the work that I do, uh, you know, I also look at the mortality and morbidity rates, uh, looking at cultural practices that affect us, 
And some of those cultural practices are things like female genital mutilation. Um, you know, that's a form of violence against women. Some see it as a cultural practice, but when you have a cultural practice where young girls are dying and they are being circumcised um, and they're having infections because of the tools which are used, you know, this is not a matter of pointing out another culture and saying that you're doing something wrong, but it's, it's, it's hopefully the beginning of a conversation about what these practices are, why they have persisted, and are they necessary, right? Um, because I don't believe, you know, early anthropologists, you know, you're supposed to have this notion of this participant observer. You're looking at things in culture and you're observing them. Many and missionaries and other people have come in with the scornful, you know, eye saying that you're not supposed to do and pointing the finger at what you're doing. This is barbaric. We're not going to do that. We want to have conversations about what are the things that are happening in this culture. We know that rape culture is pervasive right here in this country. You know, Uh you look at the way in which women are advertised. Women are advertised sitting in ways with their legs very widely open, wearing bikinis. Um, you know, um, these situations of these gang rape scenes are, are in advertisements where you have a woman with, a, let's say, a perfume ad, and she's around eight men, and they're standing over her. What is that saying? What is that perpetuating? What is that telling the youth about women, about how women are supposed to be valued or respected? What is that message that is happening that is being given to little girls? So... With Forever, one of the first things that we did was a Take Back the Night. We did a Take Back the Night march, Uh which was really powerful. Since that time, I've done programs for the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. That's a United Nations Mm -hmm. event that is done. And that event was birthed out of the killing of the Mirabal sisters who were killed in the Dominican Republic. There were three sisters who were political Uh, They were fighting the regime, and they were murdered, brutally murdered. And so now the United Nations does this event. Uh, They've been doing it for many years, um, and it focuses on the international violence against women. We know that in certain places, lesbian women are targeted. Um, It's called corrective Mm -hmm. rape, where Uh uh, it is believed that they can be raped back to heterosexuality, which is absolutely ridiculous. We know that uh, in certain places of the world, uh, men, some men believe that if they have HIV and they rape or AIDS and they rape a a girl, that they will be cured of uh, HIV and AIDS. So there are all these instances where women, and also men, because violence is perpetuated against men as well. But in this case, I'm talking about the women. There's so many cases globally where women are affected. Uh, and so I wanted to do something. So I go into college campuses, on college campuses, and I talk to young people about consent. Uh, the first one that I did was at Hampton University some years ago. It was, I believe, in 2014. And it was about 300 incoming freshmen. And I gave a talk about what healthy relationships look like and what no means and uh, what it means to be in a respectful relationship uh, with a partner because those kinds of conversations are necessary. A lot of these kids are coming to college without ever having had a conversation with their parents or caregivers about sex 
about sexual relationships, about consent. Um, and, you know, if you look at the way that the culture through music and through advertisement feeds messages to our children, we really need to take ownership of that, you know, and teach and create a different narrative around what respect looks like. So we also do, with Forever We Do, these events with Transitions Family Violence Center, uh, Family Violence Services. It's an organization in Hampton. Sanu is the head of that organization. And we bring together the police department. We bring together the military. We bring together uh, various domestic violence or, as we call it, uh, intimate partner violence. Um, so that we give credit to, you know, it doesn't mean you're living together, right? So intimate partner, that also includes same gender loving. You know, we have um, violence in the LGBT community. We have violence in the deaf community. And with forever specifically, those are the communities that I, that I focus on because when people think of domestic violence, they think in terms of heterosexual relationships. They don't think of men suffering at the hands of another man or women being in violent situations, being stalked by her partner or being, in some cases, sexually violated by her partner. Um, so these are conversations that I engage in. And at Remembrance, we talk about rape because I know that some of the women who are leaving that ceremony where we are honoring our ancestors of the Middle Passage are going home to violent situations. And so I want them to know that there are resources. We always have resources where we give them information on how to seek help if they need it. Uh, and it's necessary because domestic violence, if anything, through COVID has gotten worse. You know, people mm -hmm. are forced to be at home with their abusers. And so the rates have gone up. One of the first programs I did this year was around domestic violence, and about a month after I did the program, I learned that a high school friend of mine's daughter was in the military. She was in her early 20s. She was stabbed to death, and the baby also was killed by the father. Young woman, murdered. Uh, and so, you know, there are too many stories of young women uh, being killed at the hands of those who claim to love them. And so forever, the work of forever is to <clears throat> bring awareness to it, um, like Ida mm -hmm. Wells said, to look at it, to shine the light on it, and to work towards creating a new paradigm of what relationships should be, what consent looks like, um, so that we are more humane towards each other. No one has a right to stalk anyone else. No one has a right to take someone else's body um, and do with it that which they wish. It's just, it, it, it's deplorable. We need to think of, I, I heard a quote one day where a woman said that we need to think of rape in terms of um, cannibalism. Like young, young men need to think of rape in the same way they think of cannibalism. Um, they need to be repulsed by it. Uh, sadly, they're not, but uh -huh. in many cases, but they need to. 
You know, and it, it's it's important to talk about it. You know, I was trying to remember when. I mean, because I've been doing this for a minute. And I, at one point in time, I had a woman on who had written a book. And this woman was now, like, in her 70s. And she named it, I forget it had to do with how many houses. And what she talked about was how, first of all, she had been raped, but forced to marry her rapist because somehow mm-hmm. she was wrong. Yeah. And then she really broke down. Like, you know, they had all these different houses that she had lived in with her husband and mm-hmm. part that there was abuse, there was rape going on, but also how the economic situation made it where she felt forced to stay there. And it really wasn't, yeah, you know, and then she moved to another house, and it really wasn't until one of her grandchildren, okay, came, Mm. and the little girl was talking about something, and she recognized that her husband was making a move on her to where she, but they never talked about it. And when she wrote the book, like she said that, she heard from people who looked and thought something wasn't right or, you know, he just couldn't keep a job. That's why they had to move. Or when they saw him out doing whatever, that somehow or she was at fault or they saw things that were wrong, but nobody said anything and yeah. nobody talked about it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's still that stigma that as you see it, I mean, when you see, I mean, we have people here who do take back the night. We had people yes. who were doing the mute R. Kelly, you know, because yeah. even when, I mean, this is still going on, but there's Absolutely. also that, like you said, through some of the videos, through some of the things that, you know, mm-hmm. hey, well, it's okay. Look what he's doing for you. So what if, you know, he's hitting you or when you say no, well, he's a star. He's this. So, of right. course, he can go ahead and do it, you know. Right. And that still happens. Right. Yeah. And I know no, that our, our LGBT liaison that we have for our police department, part of what made her stand up and say, you know, you need to have this and doing it was because she would go out on runs. And if it was a mm-hmm. same-sex partnership and one of them had been her whatever that she would hear her her fellow police officers go like oh well you know it's just two women oh it's just like two guys oh oh yeah she wasn't really raped she needs a man and that's when she was like Mm -hmm. she saw the need to have that come into the police department are you seeing that level of training happening at uh places that uh, shelters who are protecting people at police departments, even in schools, for so that to protect people. Well, you know, I think what's interesting, Michelle, is that in many cases, because we live in a racist, heterosexist patriarchy, <laughs> um, in many cases, you know, you you've got to deal with the homophobia first. You know, like, you know, in many cases, people are not acknowledging or wanting to actually acknowledge that these things exist because they don't see lesbian or gay men as being worthy of being protected in some cases. I mean, that's, that's a part mm-hmm. of it. And I think, you know, 
you know, I, I'm still waiting for, I think there have been strides in the right direction. I think there are people who are acknowledging that uh, domestic violence or intimate partner violence in gay relationships is something that needs to be paid attention to. I do think there's a, a way to go with getting people to understand the severity of it because it's not just it's not just a woman in a relationship with a woman who is scared of uh, being hit. What about outing her? What about if you know that's that's something that we don't that we don't mm. many times people don't think yeah. about. There's the threat of outing the person. What if one partner is out in the community and the other one is not because of her job or because of her affiliation with her religious institution? So there are all these other factors, very unique factors that I don't think that that I know that heterosexual couples don't have to think about. With domestic violence, it is you know. It's multi-layered. There's financial violence. There's outing. There's physical violence. There's rape. There's so many layers to peel back. And so I think that's why, Michelle, it's really important that you have people in these police departments that have done work as far as inclusion and diversity, that know the language, that can speak to the specific needs of the LGBTQIA community and or the deaf community. There are so many cases where a woman who is being abused is deaf. Who can she call out to, literally? Like, who's hearing her? Mm-hmm. You know, if she goes to report it and there's not, there is not an interpreter there, who's going to know what she's saying? Who's going to hear her story? Her, her words fall upon deaf ears, literally, because people can't mm-hmm. hear her. So I think there's, I think there has been work that has been done. I think there's a, a lot of work which still needs to be done. You know, um, one of the quotes that I was looking for for you, um, Gavin DeBecker says this, that when a man says no, and I think this is something that as a culture we need to grasp. You know, no means no. No doesn't mean maybe. It doesn't matter what I'm wearing. The questions around when a woman is, is, is assaulted all have to do with her. What was she wearing? Why was she out? Why did she go to his room? You know, why didn't she? You know, even if she said yes in the beginning and changed her mind midway, her no still is no. And Gavin DeBecker has this quote, which I absolutely love. He says, if a man says no, it's the end of a discussion. When a woman says no, it's the beginning of a negotiation. Our no's are not taken seriously. And that's where, for me, the culture needs to change. Women need to stop feeling like we have to explain ourselves. We explain ourselves until the end. If, 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 I mean, for simple things, if you're asked to do something, we feel an obligation to explain why we can't do it and why we can't be there. Typically, the way in which men typically are raised, a man will say no, and that's the end of the conversation. Women feel an obligation to explain ourselves. Why do we have to ask for permission to say no? We need to teach our girls that their bodies are their bodies. One thing I did with my children, I did not force them to hug anybody. And, you know, I have seven parents, so that was not accepted. (laughs) You know, they didn't say Mm -hmm. too kindly to that. But I didn't believe in forcing my children to hug other people. 
because I wanted my kids to know what a really – or now my kids are affectionate. One is and one isn't. So my little one hugged everybody. My older son would shake people's hands or not, and people would get offended. I had relatives that would say, well, he's, you know, isn't he a strange one? He doesn't want to hug. And I would say, no, I'm teaching him how to respect his body at four because mm-hmm. I don't want my kids thinking that they have to because an adult says so. Mm-mm. That's not the model I want them to have. I want them to know that they have autonomy, that their body is sacred, and that if they don't want to hug, that they were always polite. They would say hello, auntie whomever, or uncle whomever. But those kind of lessons, I feel, have to come early. We have to teach our children that their body is theirs and needs to be respected and doesn't need to be touched or groped without their permission, you know, that no one touches mm-hmm. them and no one ever gropes them. And if they do, they need to tell an adult that they trust because the perpetuator mm-hmm. may be in the house. Mm-hmm. They, the home That's- is not always a safest place. Yeah, and that, you know, practice, that lesson alone is has a much larger significance because, you know, we as black people didn't have the right to claim our body. So, you know, in teaching our black kids, this is what it means to reclaim our bodies, to, you know, demand respect for those. I think, you know, that that practice alone isn't only healing ourselves and our families, but also killing, you know, our ancestors and future generations to come. So I think, you know, that lesson is so important for black children. I agree with you, Kizzy. It is, it's, I think it's vital. I think it's the only way that we are really going to heal because we did not have a right to our bodies. You know, there's a part in Beloved I love where she says, where Baby Sills is out in the clearing, and she says, you know, she calls everybody, and she's like, children, laugh. Let your parents hear your laughter. And she tells the people who are in the clearing, you know, she's like, men, dance. You know, women, I want you to wail. She's like, put your hands around your neck because over yonder, they don't, they don't appreciate your neck. Hold your arms and, and touch your hands because over yonder, they want to cut your arms and your hands off. You know, we've been, we've been truncated as a people. And so we are, Kizzy, I agree with you, reclaiming these pieces of ourselves. And, and through that, we are empowering our children to do the same, you know, to love ourselves, to love our hair, right, to love our skin, to love our body shapes, all the shapes and sizes and complexions that we come in. We are a beautiful, beautiful people. And we need to be reminded of that, that we come from a beautiful history, that there were tragic parts in it, just like everyone else's history, you know, that our history did not begin with slavery, that we come from um, mothers and fathers of civilization, that we are the descendants of the mothers and fathers of civilization, that we are a mighty people who created mathematics and astronomy and all these wonderful things. And we need to get back to that. That's the part of the story that needs to be told, how great we were and are and can become. You know, when you mentioned Take Back the Night, um, here we have the Sasha Center, which works uh, a lot like forever. And one of the things that is found at Kalima Johnson 
Like we would have a take night back the night, and you'd have people come up back and they tell us. But at a certain point, she recognized that there was trauma, and yeah. you were increasing the trauma. And so she set aside a space, and in fact, in one mm-hmm. in one place it was like, and it looked like a big tent where they did ritual. There was uh, drumming. Mm-hmm. There were things that acknowledged not only the trauma, but but there is ritual for healing. And that. as we talk, everything that we've talked about, you know, with the trauma of coming over through the middle passage, through having our bodies discovered, buried right there in New York, there is that trauma. How important is that spirituality, is that ritual to help yeah. us deal with this trauma as we move forward? Yeah. Well, you know, I I often say, you know, Michelle, that I acknowledge that, you know, remembrance is not a panacea for what happened to us. I I acknowledge that. But I do believe that we can, in our lives, tap into, as Tony K. Bambara said, tap into that ancestral presence in the water, that we can do things, create rituals for ourselves so that we can heal. From this trauma. You know, many of us suffer the generational trauma of slavery. You know, slavery happened, well, the Middle Passage happened. Well, being on the shores happened. Well, you know, being taken from our, our homeland happened. Then, you know, the death march, the trauma of the death march, the trauma of being in those barracoons. So how do we, how do we heal from that? I, I think we... For me, you know, it is through the, the communal work. It is through the, the spirituality of lighting sage. It is through the um, communing with my ancestors and um, having them be a part of my daily life. Uh, it, it, it's through the way that I organize my day and try to remember the greatness that I come from, you know, um, connecting with, with family members, uh, connecting with my women's circle, uh, doing things like, you know, Reiki and meditation and yoga and centering myself and being quiet and feeding myself good food and drinking water and hydrating. I mean, it's through all of those things. And I don't get it right every day. I'm not perfect. Uh-huh. None of us are. But I think if we could be intentional, I think if COVID has taught me nothing else, it has taught me the power of intention. And Mm -hmm. for me, I want to be intentional every day. I want to start each day with a sense of gratitude for just waking up, you know, for just being able uh-huh. to open my eyes and the fact that my limbs are able to move because someone woke up in a hospital bed paralyzed. Uh-huh. I am always thinking in terms of the other. So whatever I'm grateful for, I acknowledge that someone does not have that. And so it, it keeps me um, humble. It keeps me in tune really with what really matters. I also incorporate, you know, 
nature into my spiritual practice, my personal spiritual practice. I, I do wildlife years ago. So, so back in the day, I wanted to be a vet, okay? And that was probably one of my earlier uh, passions. I wanted to save all the animals. What I realized is that I couldn't become a veterinarian because I would probably have hundreds of animals because I could never put any <laughs> animal down. I would have every, like, <laughs> three-legged uh-huh. cat. Like, they would all live with me on some big land. And I said, you know, okay, I've got to let go of that dream because I just want to love animals and protect them and help them. So part of what I do is I, I became a wildlife um, uh, transporter. So I actually got certified in Virginia and yeah. did my little paperwork and uh, connected with this organization called Sacred Friends, and uh, I transport animals to be rehabilitated. And for me, you know, we have encroached as humans on their land. You know, you're finding, you know, deer. People get upset because the deer are eating their beautiful gardens. Well, that garden was a forest before you built your house mm-hmm. there, you know. Yeah. Uh, or bear, bears are in the pool, right? Well, there used to be a lake back there before you filled it so you could build this community. So mm-hmm. uh, I incorporate nature into uh, what I do because I, I feel like the, the, the big healing that needs to come is the healing of this planet. Uh, I feel like through the waterways, we have polluted the waters, we have disrespected Mother Earth. Uh, I saw a quote some time ago that, you know, with COVID, Mother Earth has sent all of us to our rooms to think about what we've done. <laughs> right? Right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So, so we need to That's be, right. we need, yeah, you know, we need to We're be taking in, a big time out. <laughs> yeah, we got a time out. Honey. We, we need to be intentional about how we move through the world, that our actions have consequences. The people whose lives, the person who we walk past, who's begging or who is hungry and we don't stop for a moment or maybe give something to or we don't, we don't volunteer at a food bank or, you know, we need to realize that we are not in, on this planet alone because COVID, as we see, does not discriminate at all. Mm-hmm. Now, who, the people mm-hmm. who it's affecting, now that's a whole other notion of racial disparity that we can get into in another conversation about medical apartheid, right? Wow. A brilliant book written by our sister. Uh, but, yeah, so for me, I incorporate, for me to heal, it's to acknowledge the wound, not touch the wound too often because I feel like if we touch it, will continue to bleed and will never heal. But acknowledge the wound, prepare the salve, prepare the aloe, treat the wound, talk about the wound, heal in community with other people who have been wounded so that we can, as a community, move forward. And maybe one day we will have a generation of us Mm -hmm. that are not as wounded, you know, that, that is my, that is my hope. That is my hope. So when people come to remembrance, it is about healing. People cry. People are joyful. People are angry when they learn about the horror of the middle passage. Um, but people walk away with a sense of connection to each other, which is a beautiful thing. And friendships are made and bonds are made. People come year after year after year 
to remember us and they meet up on the ground um, and honor, you know, of our ancestors that didn't make it. So, you know, it's a beautiful thing. I just want to say, I just remembered the name. It's Harriet, Harriet Washington. That's the author of Medical Apartheid. If anybody wants to read about racial disparities in medicine, that is, that is well, what, the Bible. Uh-huh. Well, we'll go read about it and have you back so we can talk about it. Because, um, you know, I, first of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us. And I think that hopefully, you know, there's a lot of questions that are coming out, particularly around COVID. So I think that given the time to read that and talk about it, I think it will be a worth, very worthwhile uh, discussion, but Shadra, I want to thank you for all you do. I've seen you, you know, with the animals. I saw my first uh, ladybug today, so I and oh, I thought of you, and oh, I thought of you. But I, I want to thank you for for being with us, and um, we definitely yes, are going to make you. sure that people know about Remembrance in June. 